Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Mei Nye, Professor of History and Lung Family Professor of Asian American Studies at Columbia University. Nye is a legal and political historian interested in questions of immigration, citizenship, and nationalism. She's the author of Impossible Subjects, Illegal Aliens and the Making of Modern American, America, and The Lucky Ones, One Family and the Extraordinary Invention of Chinese America. Nye has written on immigration history and policy for the Washington Post, New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Nation, and the Boston Review. Nye is the 2018-2019 Wayne Morse Chair, addressing the Morse Center's theme of borders, migration, and belonging. She gave a public talk, Nation of Immigrants, A Short History of an Idea, on January 16th, 2019. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be interested in immigration and citizenship. I'm the daughter of immigrants. My parents came to the United States from China after World War II. So it's part of my family's history, my immediate family's history. Um, and for some years I worked in New York Chinatown as a community activist and organizer and worked a lot with Chinatown residents who were by and large immigrants. Uh, so I was interested in the issues, their travails, um, their concerns. Um, so that led me to study immigration, and in particular, the problem of illegal immigration or undocumented immigration. Can you say a little bit more about how your work as a labor organizer influenced your academic interests or led to your decision to become an academic? I could see you becoming a politician. Why did going into the academy make sense for you? Working a lot with immigrant workers, I knew, I knew them, right? I knew individuals and I knew them as, as a group as well, as union members. So I knew that a lot of the stereotypes that attach to immigrants, new immigrants, uh, are false. Um, and I knew that uh, the problem of undocumented migration, which has loomed large for decades um, in our country, um, was not a simple problem of bad people, uh, lawbreakers, people of uh, deficient moral character, etc., etc. I knew it had to do with the structure of the laws itself, so I wanted to understand that better. Um, and at the time, I was working for a nonprofit labor organization that did um, labor education. Uh, much like you have a center here on your campus that does labor education and research. So I worked for a similar group uh, in New York City, and I mostly did research on labor market conditions and things like that. And so that was, that was a good job. I liked that a lot. But it didn't, it didn't really speak to my intellectual curiosity mm -hmm. about the deeper forces or the longer stories that informed the present moment. So let's talk a little bit about that mm -hmm. longer uh, purview that you have as a historian. So can you give us a kind of thumbnail sketch of that longer history of immigration in America? Is that a possible thing to do in a short amount of time? Well, I, I can try. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think the thing to understand about immigration to the United States is that um, uh, it's always been part of global changes in the world, uh, whether in the beginning of the nation's development or as colonies, right? I, I don't think the people who came during the colonial period actually should be called immigrants. They were settlers, 
they were colonial settlers. And actually through much of the 19th century, people who came to the United States also viewed themselves as settlers, as they called themselves pioneers, they called themselves emigrants, not immigrants. Um, and it's only in the late 19th century that the word immigrant and immigration begins to be much more prevalent in American political discourse and in, in social discourse. Uh, and that's because the nation has already really been set in many ways. Not that it's ever fully set. Mm -hmm. But immigrants are coming from all parts of the world to take part in America's industrialization and urbanization. Um, and it was an open system. You didn't need a passport. You didn't need a visa. There were no green cards, no quotas. People just came. And you know, I think it's, it's worth noting that during the peak years at Ellis Island, only 2% of the people were turned away. And they were turned away not on, not on um, racial or nationality origin grounds, but on grounds of individual characteristics that the law deemed to be uh, inappropriate. Like if you had a criminal background, mm -hmm. or if you were, if a woman was thought to be a prostitute. Mm -hmm. That was bad because they suspected women who were single, mm -hmm. who came without um, apparent means of support. Um, they also included people who had uh, what they called the dangerous or loathsome disease, mm -hmm. people who had infectious diseases. But only 2% were turned away. Um, and it's only in the 1920s, after World War I, where we have a new regime of immigration regulation, which put a numerical ceiling on how many people could come into the country, as well as a national origin quota system, which blatantly discriminated against people based on uh, a kind of racial hierarchy of desirability. So that was 150,000 a year set in 1924. And if you think about the level of migration before World War I, it was one million a year on average. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about an 85% <laughs> cut. Um, and that is actually what spurs the undocumented migrant. Because if everybody's legal, if there are no restrictions, if everybody's legal, then there are no, right, everybody's legal. So there's actually no great honor in being legal when everybody's legal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but once you have restrictions, then you have a system which purposefully creates two categories of immigrants, those who are legal and those who come without documents. It doesn't stop people from coming. Mm -hmm. It just alters the manner in which they can come. So this is a really important part of your work, it seemed to me that the the argument is that efforts to restrict immigration will stop people from immigrating. Right. <laughs> and you've made the argument, which seems quite persuasive, that efforts to restrict immigration, first of all, create this new class of immigrants That's who are right. illegal, and don't stop immigration. Explain that uh, logic a little bit more, because I think, I mean, in our public discourse, I think many people who listen to our politicians speak would say, what are you talking about? The way to stop this problem is to restrict it. Right. But you're suggesting that that is, in fact, counterproductive. Right. I think that is um, the biggest conceit of sovereign nations, that they can, that they can make their borders impermeable. Mm -hmm. The problem of restriction is that it doesn't actually 
have anything to do, or it rarely has much to do, with labor market forces. People come for two reasons. They come principally, those who come for economic reasons, come because they're coming from an area where they don't believe they have the economic opportunities that they think they can have somewhere else. And this is um, an index of unequal distribution of wealth in the world, right? People go from the relatively poorer nations to relatively wealthier nations. Other people migrate for p reasons of political repression and persecution, although that's often connected to economic motives. You, that's not something you can cleanly mm -hmm. separate. But by and large, people come, they move from relatively poor areas to relatively more robust economic areas. And this doesn't even necessarily mean crossing an ocean or crossing a national border. It could mean going from the countryside to the city, right? In the late 19th and early 20th century, many Americans moved from farm farming areas to cities. There was an internal migration, if you will. Um, and by 1920, a majority of people lived in cities in the United States. But they didn't all start there. Mm -hmm. Many of them, their families had moved from rural areas. So this is a pattern. You could say migration is as old as human history. People move. Not everybody moves, but people do move. And there are um, people move for individual reasons, and people move for more, you might say, larger social reasons. You know. Uh, a disaster, mm -hmm. you know, drought, um, or just searching for more opportunities. Um, and in the 19th century, they went farther and farther from home than they had in the past because you had transoceanic transportation and you had um, railroads to move people farther distances. So mass migration is really a global phenomenon in the late 19th century mm -hmm. and as part of the spread of global capitalism. And the United States is part of that. Um, so once you put on restrictions, it doesn't change all of those other forces that are at work around the world. It doesn't change the balance of uh, wealth and how it's distributed. It doesn't change uh, a labor market in any particular place. Um, so you know, it's interesting because I'm not in general, I'm not a free market uh, advocate. Mm -hmm. But in the realm of immigration, I think if you let the market work, it actually will regulate immigration to a large extent. Mm -hmm. For example, um, you know, since the 1980s, the United States has been building uh, more and more um, enforcement apparatus on the Mexico border. And it didn't stop unlawful migration. Um, in fact, it had a it had a kind of a perverse effect in that as it became harder to go back and forth, people just stayed in the United States. So there was an accretion of the undocumented population where actually it might have stayed lower if people had been able to just more comfortably go back and forth even without documents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So what stopped, um, uh, what led to the a great decline in migration from Mexico? It was a 2008 recession. Mm -hmm plummeted. And then you had, for a couple of years, a net loss. You had more people leaving to go back to Mexico than people coming. And now migration from Mexico is net zero. That's because the economy has not really improved that much. For It's improved for wealthy people in the United States. It has not improved for poor people. 
Uh, but also things in Mexico are better. Mm -hmm. So there's less reason for people to leave. So the, what we see now is, is not really, uh, what we see now at the border is actually a crisis of um, asylum mm -hmm. seekers being denied entry. That's a different kind of problem. And they're not mostly Mexican workers. Yeah, so talk a little bit about that. What's, tell us about the, what's, okay, so we, we hear about this crisis in our political discourse. Your argument is that the crisis we hear about is not actually what the crisis is. Tell us right. about the real right. crisis. Well, the real crisis is um, uh, incredible political instability and violence in Central American countries, uh, much of which um, the United States has had a role in creating, establishing that instability, um, its backing of repressive dictatorships. Uh, so the United States does not have clean hands with regard to why people are leaving Honduras and other Central American countries. Um, and, uh, and I think we need to be really clear that American law and international law gives the right of any person who arrives on U.S. soil to make a request for asylum. They cannot be turned away. They have to be given an interview. So the administration is breaking American law by saying we won't let people in. Now they are processing people deliberately at a snail's pace so that there is a humanitarian crisis in Tijuana with people living in tents in uh, very difficult conditions. But you know we're not talking about hundreds of thousands of people. It's a few thousand people, if that. And um, so this uh, rhetoric about an invasion and criminals and terrorists, it's all completely at odds with the facts on the ground. And um, you know what, what the administration has been doing, uh, everything from what it was doing uh, earlier uh, last year was separating children mm -hmm. from their parents and putting them in these horrific detention centers, um, that's a violation of both American law and international law. So this administration has been breaking the law and create manufacturing a crisis um, that doesn't exist other than the crisis that it's made itself in this so-called zero tolerance or deterrence policy. And, and if I may say this, I think what the administration is doing is that it is turning asylum seekers who are legitimate claimants for protection, it's turning asylum seekers into illegal aliens. Mm -hmm saying we're not going to let you in, and if you come in, we're going to throw you out. Are you aware of there are any lawsuits that are being brought against the administration around this particular yes, topic? Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Um, in fact, uh, there was, a, uh, I think, a district court level decision um, that, said that, they, that, that said the United States was, was breaking its own laws. That's on appeal, you know, mm -hmm. we don't, that's not resolved. Um, and of course, the, the separation of children was litigated in the courts, and they were ordered to return the children, and they still haven't returned all the children. Yeah, what, do we, what, what happens in a case like that where the legal recourse has been taken, but the implementation of the remedy is not happening? What, what can be right. done? Is there anything that can, can be, be done? done? I think um, keep protesting, yeah. keep litigating, you know, what it's, what it's done is, um, well, first, you know, why haven't all the children been returned to their parents? Um, 
I think it's, there's different reasons. One is that uh, sometimes they don't know who the child belongs to because they didn't, they didn't write it down. I mean, if you go, if you're arrested and are taken to the county jail, they give you a receipt for your wallet, right? This is a child and they don't have, they don't have good records or phone numbers uh, for them. It's just unimaginable that they could treat people this way, mm -hmm. right? But also they are now um, detaining children and parents in the same place, although not together. Mm -hmm. So they have these kind of makeshift detention centers made out of, you know, like army Quonset huts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they have, um, and inside them are like chain link fences. I mean, they're actually cages inside these barracks. And they have parents in some of them and they have children in others. So they, they're still separated. Their children cannot be with their mothers. They don't have physical contact. But technically they're not separated because they're in the same facility. Mm -hmm. So there's a fair amount of, you know, cheating going on, if you will, mm -hmm. and I think that's being litigated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the lawyers are very busy, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the clock keeps ticking and people are suffering, and it's just a horrible situation. So uh, yeah. at the moment that we're speaking, uh, we're now on the 26th day of a government shutdown, right. which is a dispute <clears throat> over policies toward the border and the president is insisting for $5 billion to build the wall, and uh, the Democrats are uh, arguing that the wall is immoral and that they're not going to give that money. Uh, it's, it's, from the outside, it looks like uh, no progress is being made. It's hard to imagine progress happening. Um, and so the, the uh, the magic bullet or the nuclear option is that the president is going to declare a national emergency. So what are your views about that prospect? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think we should be very worried about that. I think it's very scary. You know, any time um, an executive, a chief executive, declares an emergency, um, what they're asserting is <clears throat> their uh, their right to special powers that are not checked by any democratic mechanism. So this is how this is how authoritarian regimes and fascist regimes um, uh, unfold. They don't happen. You don't wake up one morning and there's stormtroopers in the street. It happens incrementally, mm -hmm. and um, you know uh, already this administration has been waging a war against the media against a free press. Um, it's, it's wreaked havoc in, term, in the country in terms of what people even can think is trusty, trustworthy as news. Um, and it's relentless in its, its uh, attacks on, on the media and on journalists. And that's, that's a real, that is part of the, what do you call it, the, um, the, the game book of authoritarianism, right? You attack the press, you attack vulnerable populations, people who have fewer legal rights to begin with, like immigrants. Um, and then, you know, that's how it unfolds. But I will just say this about this closing the government. You know, I, I think what's left unexamined is it's not just the Democrats who don't want to build this wall. 
Um, the Repub there, not everybody in the Republican Party wants to build this wall. Not everybody in the Republican Party believes the president should just be able to hold the, the federal workers hostage to his own personal demands. They could get out of this crisis by passing a budget that is veto-proof. The Republican Party can pass a budget in the Senate that has enough votes that a veto won't stand. So what are they waiting for? What is Mitch McConnell waiting for? I think this is part of the story. Now, the story as is told is the Democrats, Pelosi and Schumer versus Trump. But I think that actually the key to solving the problem lies in Congress passing a budget with enough votes to override a presidential veto. And then that's why presidents can't just throw temper tantrums, because he doesn't make the laws. And uh, that's, the, that's the piece of the checks and balance that nobody's really talking about. And I don't understand why nobody's talking about mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So let me ask you a, a couple of other more specific questions about policies that have been implemented or uh, that the administration mm -hmm. is attempting to implement. So there's a recent proposed regulation by the Department of Homeland Security that would restrict low-income immigrants. Yes. So say a little bit about the significance <coughs> of that or the problematics of that. Uh, what they want to do is change the definition of public charge mm. so that um, uh, they can exclude. So is, explain what public charge okay. is. Public charge is um, it's a very old concept. It's somebody who receives um, welfare in our common par parlance. Mm -hmm. A public charge is somebody who is dependent upon the government for maintenance. And uh, we've had public charge exclusions um, and deportations in immigration law since 1882. Since 1882, a person arriving, if they are considered likely to become a public charge, meaning there's some reason why an immigration inspector thinks they're not able-bodied and cannot work, they can be excluded as likely to be a public charge. And it's been a very loose category, mm -hmm. what that means. Um, but, uh, and it actually derives from the English, the old English poor laws, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. towns could worn out people who were not um, residents, I I people who were indigent, mm -hmm. so they wouldn't have to support them. So, um, and deportation of public charges has always been limited to people who are uh, in long-term long institutionalized, like in asylums, or it used to be poor houses. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the modern era, it referred to people who were uh, completely dependent on cash benefits for support. Mm -hmm. People who are completely dependent on cash benefits. Now they want to add to the meaning of public charge people who receive Medicaid, people who receive non-cash benefits, like food stamps, mm -hmm. Um, a whole list of uh, uh, Section 8 housing subsidies, a lot of um, social benefits that are products of um, the Johnson era Great Society anti-poverty programs. And these are not meant as um, maintenance. They were meant to help people we call the working poor, right? People who actually are employed but don't earn enough to be able to um, have a healthy diet for their children or receive medical care, et cetera, et cetera. 
So by expanding the scope of what is a public charge, the administration is actually out to punish low-income immigrants. And, um, and it has this, the rule has not been passed. Mm -hmm. um, it garnered uh, in the Federal Register over 200,000 comments, which I think is a record mm. for public comment. Mm. Um, I wrote together with uh, a group of historians a, a historian's comment, mm -hmm. uh, and we posted it to that website explaining mm -hmm. this long history of public charge policy and immigration and how what they're proposing is a radical departure. And what it aims to do, again, it's not actually to prevent low-income people from coming to the United States. It's to drive them into illegal channels mm -hmm. and to deprive them of any benefit. I mean, as it is now, um, legal immigrants can receive many benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and up until the late 1970s, even undocumented immigrants could receive those benefits. Mm -hmm. So they've just been chipping away at that. But what this does is it doesn't actually restrict poor people from coming to the United States. It just will put them into that other stream where they'll have to work and live in the shadows. Mm -hmm. So. Uh -huh. Uh, we've got a, about three minutes left, so let's talk a little bit about um, the activities that you'll participate in as the Morse Chair at the okay. University of Oregon. So t tell us what you're doing for, uh, while you're here. I'm giving um, a public lecture um, on immigration history. That's the, the big public event, but I'm also participating in some other public events. There's one on citizenship and denaturalization that's happening on Thursday. Um, and then next Tuesday, there's a community forum on immigration and the Oregon communities with uh, people from outside the campus. So those are some of the public events. Um, I'm also uh, speaking in some classes. I spoke in an Asian American uh, history class uh, earlier this week. And I also spoke in a history class on um, uh, immigration and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. So I'm visiting classes and um, meeting lots of interesting people, and, um, and the university community has been very welcoming. I'm very pleased to be here. So we have a, uh, just over a minute left. Um, <coughs> what are you working on now, scholarly-wise? Uh, in a minute. <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> in a minute. Um, I'm trying to finish a book that I've been working on for many years called The Chinese Question, mm -hmm. and it is about uh, the Chinese who went to the gold rushes in the 19th and early 20th century. So I study California, of the Australian gold rushes and uh, gold mining in South Africa. And these, these gold rushes, especially in California and Australia, were the first occasions of mass contact between large numbers of Chinese people and large numbers of Europeans and Americans. And so I'm interested in both what the Chinese did, you know, about a social history of this diasporic f formation, but I'm also interested in the racial politics that arise in each of these places and what leads to um, uh, the passage of Chinese exclusion laws throughout the Anglo-American settler societies. Well, um, we'll look forward to that uh, yeah. book's publication. I want to thank you so much, Mei Nai, for speaking with us today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Mei Nai, professor of history and Lung family professor of Asian American studies at Columbia University. Nai is the 2018-19 Wayne Morse Chair addressing the Morse Center's theme of borders, migration, and belonging. 
She gave a public talk, Nation of Immigrants, A Short History of an Idea, on January 16th, 2019. Thanks so much for watching.